but I'm, I'm grateful to be with all of you. Grateful as ever, but grateful especially and honored to receive uh, your love. So let's pray before we start. And gracious God, we, we rejoice that you do know that more than just what it is to be God, you also know what it is to be human. It is baffling at times what it means, the weight of that reality, but we trust that you are making it known to us. And we ask that as we yield to the truth of who you are, that you might continue to show us that you understand. We love you. In the name of Jesus, amen. The palace of the Pharaoh always echoes when we walk the stone hallways. We're not in here very often, but it's also not completely unfamiliar to us. I look over at my partner and she's still in shock, walking sort of stiffly, thousand yard stare. We decide once we get out of the palace complex that we have to call a meeting of the younger midwives. They gather all noisy, greeting one another, overlapping conversations. Some report on successful births, newly pregnant neighbors. Some are taking bets on who will come early or late. I stand and I gather their attention. And as quietly and seriously as I can, I recount what the Pharaoh had instructed us. He told us to kill any boy child from our people at the moment of their birth, as they are entering the world, as the breath comes to their lungs. We can leave the girl children alone, he said. The gasps that filled the room are followed by a thick, heavy silence. No one wanting to break it. I look at Shifra and she looks at me and we turn again to the gathered women. We tell them that the conversation we're having cannot leave this room. That the things that we share here cannot be spoken to anyone else. And we remind them of our own God. Not Pharaoh, king and God in Egypt, but Yahweh. We have to disobey the instructions. And before I'm even finished speaking, the resolve enters the eyes and hearts of each gathered. To speak about our decision to acknowledge the treason that we were committing would have meant a death sentence for us and everyone we loved. But with assurance that God would protect us, that this was worth risking ourselves for, We determined to place ourselves in harm's way so that there might be a future for our people. This portion of the story is not written in your text. This time that we spent is an imaginative experience of what we know from what's present in our story. Exodus is the recorded story of the exit of God's people from Egypt from enslavement. We're still in the first chapter, so we know that deliverance is not around the corner. Freedom is yet a while away. And in this chapter, we find this story about these two women, both of whom have names, somewhat unusual for such a short story, and they're never mentioned again. 
just before this, this new Pharaoh had begun enslaving the Hebrew people. All of Jacob's sons and their families had found themselves in Egypt because of Joseph's great success there and the famine that had driven them out of their own homeland. They were thriving in Egypt. But after Joseph's death and the death of all those in their generation, a new Pharaoh comes along. He knows the history of Joseph. He knows the history of the people of Israel, but he does not see them the same way. He thinks they are a threat. His first attempt to keep Israel contained, to keep them from threatening his nation, is to put the Hebrew people to work, enslaving them without their consent. They had not come by force to Egypt. They were not prisoners of war. No one had sold them to the Egyptians. But they had come willingly as migrants fleeing a terrible crisis to the family of one who could keep them safe. But this new Pharaoh disregards that history, the contributions that Joseph had made, and enslaves all of them. The words the text uses are bitter, harsh, ruthless, cruel. This is Pharaoh's first attempt to stop Israel from growing, uh, but it doesn't work. They continue to multiply and grow. The harder oppressed the Hebrew people were, the greater their multiplication. So Pharaoh tries again. And that's the story we find ourselves reading today, the story of the midwives. We're in the first chapter of Exodus. Uh, We're going to read 15 through 21. And it starts like this. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and one of whom Pua, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthing stool, if it is a son, kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? Why have you allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to the Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So we hear this text that Pharaoh summons these Hebrew midwives, and they stand before him. He's speaking directly to them, maybe a translator present. He doesn't send them an edict. He doesn't make an announcement. He doesn't even risk a messenger. He tells them face to face what he wants them to do. And he says that they are to actively kill any babies born that are sons. And that any daughters can be passively permitted to survive. Sitting up on the throne, I'm sure that Pharaoh's intimidation factor was off the scale, even for hardened women such as these midwives. We imagine a scene similar to the one we started with, a gathering of the rest of those in their profession, the horror and the heartbreak of hearing Pharaoh's instruction, and the fear that came from the decision to resist. 
These two women are crucial to our understanding of the story. They may have been non-Hebrew women who served in the midwife, as midwives of the Hebrew people, uh, but more likely they are Hebrew women and Hebrew midwives. Shifra's name is Semitic, and the root is similar to the word for beautiful or pleasing. Or you could take it another way, that it's drawn from the word meshaferet, to cleanse, that her role in the process of birth is to wash the new children as they enter the world. The other, Pua, is also a Semitic name, similar to the verb for to call or to cry out. She who calls the children out of their mother's womb, the one on whom the children cry as they are born. We don't know their lineage, their tribal connection, whether they're married before this point or not, how old they were, just that they serve as the head, the mothers of their own midwifing guild. And because of that, they're brought to Pharaoh's presence. In our text, the statement that comes down from Pharaoh is very clear. There's not a lot of wiggle room. They are not to allow the Hebrew people to continue growing and thriving. Pharaoh had tried the first method and it hadn't worked, and he'd hoped, I'm sure, that dealing with the issue with the source would make him successful. The women don't verbally agree in the text to Pharaoh's demand, nor do they disagree and speak out. Instead, they do something even more insane than Pharaoh's instruction. They defy him. They lie. They avoid. They sneak around. They deceive. And they directly defy the ruler of one of the most powerful nations on earth, who is their own king. If even a tiny hint, or a hint of a hint of their defiance, had gotten back to Pharaoh, they and everyone in their families would have been killed without a second thought. And if they had done as the Pharaoh had asked, then they would have been allowed to live their lives as normal. And no threat of death would come down from the throne, And in some ways, their fellow Israelites would understand. They were following the rules, the law. Who would defy the king? The many midwives would have been much safer following the law, not stepping out of the roles that they were in to maybe save a few children. By choosing to resist, they risk their own safety and lives and the safety and lives of those that they loved. The backlash from this, were it discovered, would have been even greater than what they would have gained by a few baby boys. The risk and reward scale tips strongly in Pharaoh's favor, which he knew with great confidence. But it is still not enough for him to win. And seeing their resistance, we can interpret and try to understand their reasonings. Notice that there's no place in the text where God tells them to do this. God does not divinely instruct them to uh, not kill these children. Nor are these midwives operating out of a known body of law of God. They don't have the law yet. They're not to that point in the story. They're only operating on what they know to be true of the God of Abraham. And out of their own desire and love, to preserve 
their people, to allow them to get to the possibility of God's deliverance. They don't see their roles as one who takes lives for a king, even their own king. And out of that understanding, they directly disobey. I do wonder who noticed first. Maybe there's a a role in the palace that's titled Hebrew baby boy counter, or a, a public servant who files all of the birth certificates and noticed that nothing had changed. Maybe it's one of Pharaoh's own officials who finally says something to him a little awkwardly a few months in. And Pharaoh summons these midwives again to his presence. What is happening, he demands, and why is it still happening? He's baffled, he's angry, and he's ready to act. The women, who he already made the mistake of discounting once, foil him a second time. They know who he is, and they play off his racial prejudices to reinforce the lies they've been telling. They say to him, oh, the Hebrew women, you know, they're much like like wild animals in the field. They're totally uncivilized. They give birth just quickly and unexpectedly. And by the time that we arrive, they're already finished. They're not delicate and well-timed and patient like the Hebrew women, virtuous, soft. So we can't carry out your instruction because these women are stubborn and basically not humans anyway, right? (laughs) His first mistake was not considering that Shifra and Pua might defy his law. His second mistake was allowing his prejudices to block the part of his brain that rules with logic. These midwives played him like a baby grand piano, and the matter was settled. They left. He sent them on their way, returning to their roles in their community. No lives lost. No one risked. This text comes to an end, but the story that it is in is not over. We've seen the first portion of this messy story of deliverance, where the blessing of living in Egypt with Joseph's influence is turned into harsh labor conditions. Then we see this second attempt to destroy the people, but it is foiled a second time by these midwifing women. And just after this portion, in verse 22, Pharaoh stops hiding his shady intentions and outright instructs every Egyptian to throw any baby Hebrew boys that they see into the river. The Israelite people have been promised. They know that they will be returning to Canaan someday, to the land of their fathers. But it seems that every time they take a step forward, they take three steps back. Every time they find relief, like a comfortable place in Egypt during a famine, or success when defying the king of Egypt, then they find trouble just over their shoulder. Enslavement, the threat of children taken from their mother's arms to certain death. And if we read on, we would see the cycle continuing again, with Moses born to his mother, hidden, saved by the Pharaoh's daughter, but banished 40 years later for murder, with a furious Pharaoh threatening his life. Where is God's deliverance? 
we often expect the deliverance of God to be clear, direct, obvious, straightforward. However, God shows us repeatedly that this is not the way that deliverance comes because God is continually inviting and integrating us, humanity, into the work of deliverance. In the story of the midwives, Shifra and Pua and all the others, we see that God is working even in the midst of something that seemed like a step back. But without the edict to kill the children, Moses would have remained in his mother's house. With the horror of this ruling of Pharaoh, he is instead sent down the river to be drawn out by this royal daughter. These things would lead to both his banishment and his eventual return, holding the hand, the staff of God in his hand. The exit of the people with the gold of their Egyptian neighbors and exodus in the land promised to their forebearers. God is working with the human actions to accomplish God's will, not thwarted by anything. When we think about the story, it might be a little complicated to find our place in it, to identify the things that it teaches us. So I want us to consider it in kind of two ways. The first is that we receive through this story an invitation to serve, remaining confident of God's deliverance. There are occasions in your life where the question arises, do I work for my interests or do I work for the interests of someone else? It's a big enough deal to not just work for your own interests, but to allow the interests of others to rule. But to put your own self at risk for the work of someone else is another challenge entirely. And these situations, as much as we might like for them to be, are often not clear. It's usually not murderers and Nazis at the door, but much more subtle questions of what it means to risk ourselves for someone else. How do I risk my security by prioritizing the deeper goals of freedom and deliverance by God's love? Do I associate with people who will ruin my reputation? Do I make sacrifices financially for people that others have determined are not worth my time? Do I challenge authorities sitting in on terribly boring town hall meetings in order to work for the interests of someone else. Interests that are not my own. Interests that sometimes put my needs at risk. We are invited to join God in the mess, the blood, the cervical mucus of the delivery room. And it will cost us something to be there. Are we open to the challenges deliverance will ask of us when it means putting ourselves and those that we love at risk? The second truth that we apply from our story today is to hold fast when deliverance seems far away. You may feel yourself in this place right now. It might seem like in your day-to-day, you cannot catch a break. 
Perhaps you're witnessing it in the life of someone you love, someone you know. When we reach a personal point of crisis, and when our family or our community reaches a point of crisis, it can be easy to give up hope. The message of the midwives in this case is to hold fast and believe that deliverance will come. These midwives may not have seen the freedom of their people with four more decades of enslavement before Moses would return. They did not know that one born after their efforts to preserve the sons of Israel would be hidden away, returned to his mother, and delivering all of Egypt. They did not know that after their nation had been built and then had crumbled, that another son of Israel would come, who would deliver all of creation from death and decay forever. Not knowing, not remembering, not holding that deliverance is coming can be an impossible burden. So we must hold tightly now to what we know to be true. God is a God who delivers, and God is coming to deliver us. You've been listening to me, Pastor Kana Moore, at Hayes Christian Church. Hayes Christian Church is a non-denominational fellowship in Hayes, Kansas. We are supported by the generosity of our members, attenders, and friends. The financial support we raise goes to projects which further spread the gospel to those who do not yet know Jesus, to those local, national, and international missions, and they help keep these podcasts free. If you would like to share a monetary gift with us, please visit our website at hayeschristianchurch.org and click on the donate button, or you may mail your gift to P.O. Box 1111, Hayes, Kansas, 67601. If you have any questions, comments, or would like more information, we would love to hear from you. Simply go to our website and click on the Contact Us form. Thank you for your generosity, and may God bless you as you seek to follow him.